found some wood and started a fire and danced even though there wasn't any music. I went to meetings, I wrote the letters, and pretty soon I wasn't alone. We get out of the truck, we hiked through this field with our surfboards. I'm like, there's no way there's going to be waves here. At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We are activists and dreamers. Stories of the fabric of our shared culture, and we're proud to sponsor the Dirtbag Diaries. Visit us at Patagonia.com. There was no way around it. Writing wasn't going well. After two years of making connections, scoring a couple of features, the paychecks dried up. My bank account was about to resemble a dry river gulch. Five months had passed without selling a single new piece. When two of my closest friends, Aaron and Amanda, offered me a job as a climbing guide out at Smith Rock for the summer, I thought about it for a few minutes, envisioned staring fruitlessly at a computer screen for another three months, and immediately said yes. put in a formal application to the guiding services owner, and two weeks later, I was talking terrified Boy Scouts up roots. I fell into the easy rhythm of my younger years. Early starts, strong coffee, lots of laughter, evening swims in the cold water of the Deschutes River, two cans of PBR followed by a warm sleeping bag in the back of a truck. I was 22 again, not a failing rider. That summer, it was like a vacation from life. The pay was bad, the heat was horrendous, but I loved chatting with the clients. Most of all, I enjoyed working with the Outward Bound-esque groups, with their bubbly teenagers. We contracted ourselves out to a summer outdoor program based out of Atlanta. The kids all tended to be from the South, and I often found myself chuckling when addressed as Sir. Often the kids would lower to the ground, too excited to form complete sentences. After the initial adrenaline surge faded, the questions would begin. What's it like to sleep on the wall? How do, how do you go to the bathroom? What's the hardest route here? Can I try it? They would paw through the gear rack, inspecting each piece like it was some unexplainable relic dug up from the earth. It felt good to be back, close to those first exhilarating moments of the vertical life. The approaches were short, the routes straightforward. Life was pretty cush. The greatest challenge was always keeping out of the sun. Typically, paying customers will forget to tip when they're in the throes of a heat stroke. Mornings began early, and sometime around 2 p.m., when the sun, which we lovingly referred to as the Death Star, blanketed the face in crushing heat, we would shuffle back on the dusty trails to the air-conditioned office to file paperwork. The only real objective hazard was the owner. Typically, she stayed out of our hair, but on the rare occasion that she worked with us, weight was never shouldered equally. She had a bad habit of beginning projects and leaving others to finish them. We could expect urgent voicemails, but when we'd call back, there'd be no answer. She'd ask us to coordinate with our client, but then forget to leave the number. We'd sigh, go in early, and shuffle through post-it notes trying to connect a name to a phone number. We've all had good bosses. We've all had bad bosses. Whatever. Late in the summer, after a two-week vacation in the heart of the season, the owner returned blustering with energy and vigor. We were going to be on national TV. One of the major network morning shows, Good Morning America or Today, I can't remember which for the life of me, 
had a unique and groundbreaking idea for summer fluff content. They would send each of their broadcasters to a week of summer camp. They would get to be a kid again. One of the anchors selected the Atlanta-based outfit we guided for. So a camera crew, a producer, and the talent would be joining the kids and us for a day of climbing. We were going to be big time. In early August, the owner called a meeting. The plan had been formulated, the guide's hand picked. Charlie would be the face of the company. Charlie's a class act, friendly, always quick with a joke to suit the audience, and great with kids and adults alike. The cameras would be trained on him as he helped the network anchor prepare for her climb. The owner would belay, Aaron would do the setup. Because of my experience rigging for photographers, I was responsible for the cameramen and making sure they got the shots they needed. The cameramen would be experienced. He had shot climbing dozens of times, the owner told me. I was to remain behind scenes at all cost. This was serious business. Details needed to be ironed out, locations scouted. We needed to be clean-shaven. We needed new pristine t-shirts. Sweating would be frowned upon. All of us played along. We weren't above it, though. The evening before, we tried to play it cool, but Charlie wondered aloud whether the anchor woman was hot, and then he wondered if she were single. Aaron and I discussed ornate rigging strategies. We wondered whether big-budget productions meant big-budget tips. None of us had even heard of this woman or remember seeing the show she hosted, but admittedly, we were still slightly excited. The summer heat wave necessitated an early start. It was imperative to allow for extra time with the camera crew and interviews before the sun hit the wall at 1 p.m. Kids fainting in 100-degree temps was not what the producer had in mind. The camera crew, our owner, and the owner of the Atlanta-based outdoor adventure program arrived as an entourage of minivans and Subarus. The anchor was with the kids and counselors and would be arriving shortly. We would head out before them. The van's side door slid open, and a 30-something woman with brand-new REI clothing emerged, followed by two middle-aged cameramen. She seemed slightly annoyed and walked ahead of them like an older sister who had just watched her younger brothers engage in a farting contest. She was a New York producer. They were Portland camera grunts. The cameraman shouldered the heavy camera bags and asked me to carry a third. I went to the truck to fish out the bigger 6500cc haul bag, big enough to crawl into. I dumped the contents of my regular pack, two ropes, a little gear, a senders, a harness, and asked for the camera. I had just established myself as the runt of this litter. I was a wild animal flinching in a territory dispute. The cameraman descended to feast on weakness. Tripods, spare lenses, sound systems and mics, sunscreen, snacks, light meters, digital analyzer photometers, two 15-pound spare camera batteries, and one 10-ounce bottle of Evian to get them through the seven hours in 100-degree heat. Three minutes earlier, they had had just three cameras, but now they were Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese out to make an opus. Frank and Marty emptied the contents of the minivan onto my spine. Smelling blood, my owner even got into the mixed. She opened her pack and tossed the rack of quick draws in for good measure. I was the human mule. I crawled along the flat rolling trail that would take us to Smith Rock's shaded west face. 
water vapor lifted from the slow waters of the crooked river. A blue heron waited motionless for its breakfast. While Frank and Marty paused to shoot B-roll, I chatted with the producer. She was nice, but understandably distracted. Her cell phone rang. She danced around trying to get the best signal. Marty and Frank caught up, already huffing and puffing in the warming air. Do you think she'll do well? They asked each other rhetorically. By she, they meant the anchor. Yesterday, she couldn't stay in the raft. She's just so blah. I just, I mean, she probably won't even get up to climb today, Marty confided. I guess white water rafting hadn't gone that well. The producer snapped. She just returned from her phone conversation and spoke to the cameraman like they were two incompetent handymen who had hit the water main. Let's just not try and repeat yesterday's debacles. Let's wrap this up and get back to Portland and be done with it. Frank and Marty fell behind. The producer and I paused along a bend in the river. I wiggled the pack onto a small boulder to get some of the weight off my shoulders. Her cell phone rang again. She paced in circles, coordinating details for the anchor's return flight. A heron startled and flapped from the water. Five deers entered the soft current, bent low, and drank. The dark, slow water reflected it all in perfect symmetry. The producer snapped her phone shut and turned round and stopped. We stood there for a few seconds, taking it in, completely silent. I looked over at her. I could see the strain in her face, see the early wrinkles setting in across her eye line. I thought about my own home office, quiet and empty. As a young journalist, I had almost entered her world of incessantly ringing phones. I looked back at the deer again, who seemed unfazed by her presence. A phone, still in her hand, rang. It rang again. She slowly looked down at the number. It rang again. The producer picked up the receiver and was back in the turmoil of her New York studio. By the time we reached the base of the small top roping cliff where we'd meet the kids and the anchor, Frank was working on a heart attack. Marty was about to have an aneurysm. Their water bottles were already drained. It turned out Frank's climbing experience began with dropping his kid off for a birthday party at a climbing gym and culminated by one shooting climbers from the ground. He was actually a little bit afraid of heights, he admitted. Harnessed, roped up, and on belay, he pulled himself onto the rock, made one move, and went completely limp. This wasn't going to work. I set Frank up with ascenders. He could just climb the rope, but again, he flailed and flopped. I was going to have to just haul his 230 pounds up the cliff. I scampered to the top, set up a 5 to 1 mechanical pulley system, and began heaving my weight onto the pulley. Three feet off the ground, he crumbled, closed his eyes, rolled onto his side in his best attempt to get into a fetal position. Even with the mechanical advantage, moving in upward inch by inch required all my strength, every ounce of my frame. Frank scraped along, unable to function like a fish floundering on the river bank. When he arrived, I was dizzy from exertion. That wasn't that bad, he remarked, as if noting a particularly long elevator ride. The shoot commenced, cameras rolled, Charlie did his safety talk, hit his jokes perfectly, our owner taught the anchor how to tie a figure eight knot, and slipped in our company's name in every sentence. In the heat, the anchor's makeup had begun to run, wayward strands of hair escaped from her ponytail, 
She tried to smile and be breezy, but I could tell she was terrified. Now securely positioned next to me, Frank fumbled with camera gear. The anchor began to climb. Frank filmed, but his hands shook wildly. The camera jiggled back and forth. The anchor moaned. Our owner yelled out cheerful encouragement. Charlie coached her through the moves. Encouraged by the counselors, the kids half-heartedly muttered, Right on! You can do it! Don't die! Apparently, they were over their time in the limelight. The anchor picked her way up the large holds and arcing crack. Her legs shook with honest, genuine fear. As she neared our perch, I offered words of encouragement. Grab this! Lift your foot up! Grab that! Against the yellow and red rock, her legs looked shockingly white, like she hadn't worn a pair of shorts in years. The day before she'd fallen out of the raft into a rapid, even Frank and Marty had managed to stay in the boat. The teens, they were still snickering over her ill-advised attempts to bond with them. She tried to make them sing Britney Spears songs for the camera. Despite being 30 years old, she was like the awkward teen of the group, who just couldn't seem to get it right. Twenty sets of eyes followed her every move, Millions more would join in the scrutiny once the piece aired. This attempt to return to childhood had gone horribly awry. She was trying to be peppy, to be a good sport. But I could tell she would like to be back in New York beneath camera lights and reading from a teleprompter, maybe even reporting from Iraq, but certainly not here, pretending to be a teenager in a summer camp. As she grabbed the final hold, I reached out a hand and pulled her onto the ledge between me and Frank so that she could stand for a moment. We exchanged the painfully awkward high five. I winced and prayed that that hadn't been caught on camera. She asked to just sit still for a moment before being lowered. She gazed out at the central Oregon landscape. She stood in silence, looking at the snow-capped Mount Jefferson and Mount Hood. Pretty beautiful, I offered up and smiled. I tried to remain out of camera. I can't believe I did that, she said, smiling weakly, still out of breath. It was a statement I'd heard hundreds of times that summer. Back on the ground, Frank and Marty teased sound bites from the anchor. Our owner jockeyed for position in front of the camera and expounded on creating powerful experiences for kids in the outdoors. Thirty minutes later, the cameras were packed up. It was a wrap. The kids would stay on to finish the day, while the crew would head back to Portland. I gave Frank and Marty the remainder of my water. I assume they survived, but I'm not going to vouch for it. The owner, of course, left us shorthanded on guides and scampered after the anchor and producer to be closer to celebrity for just a few more minutes. Nobody bothered to tip. The white-hot light of fame slouched away, and it was quiet once again. All of us, the kids, Charlie, and the counselors, looked at one another and laughed. With the cameras gone, the kids were finally able to crack all the jokes they'd been holding in for three days. Even the counselors joined in. The season ended a week or so later. Kids returned to school, vacations ended. There were a couple of private clients, but my own experiment with returning to childhood was coming to a close. I flirted with the idea of returning to guiding full-time. But it was just that, a flirtation with a lifestyle that was no longer mine. My time as the human mule was over. There were phones to answer, my own wedding to plan, deadlines to meet. 
Out of the blue, someone bought a piece. I had to reassume the life of importance. A couple weeks later, sitting at my desk, the phone rang. Amanda chirped away. You're famous, she joked. You got more FaceTime than, you know, probably like 15 seconds. I don't think she was too happy about it. The piece had run the day before. In the production room, the producers had edited eight hours of hell into a tight two-minute bundle. Not bad work. On the digital room cutting floor were Charlie's jokes, the owner's mention of life-changing experiences, and her incessant attempts to include our company's name. The only footage that caught the producer's eye was the anchor's moments atop the climb. Relieved and partly amazed, she stares out, slightly disheveled, into the central Oregon desert. She breathes heavily, with adrenaline and jabbers like a teenager. Her guide congratulates her. In the end, she extends her bird-like arm to a stubble-faced man with sweat streaks on his once-white shirt. Two people from different walks of life raise hands, share an awkward high-five, and celebrate the fleeting taste of youth. Music today by David Carson Daniels, Golden Shoulders, Greg Yeti, and Monk. You can find links and stream the songs on our site, dirtbagdiaries.com. All music provided by Iota Promonet. Got a comment, story suggestion? Listeners play a vital role in creating these stories, so feel free to drop us an email at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. I'm going to take a quick vacation slash work trip, but I will be back in the office in the coming weeks putting together the summer stories. We've got some good ones coming up. Nine to fivers redraw the lines of extreme skiing, lessons learned from life abroad, and an amusing look at our dependence on cars. So stay tuned. Our show is made possible with support from Patagonia. I know a lot of you have found our show through The Cleanest Line, the company's blog. If you haven't, check it out, thecleanestline.com. It continually supplies the procrastination material I don't need but love. This is the Dirtbag Diaries. I'm Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening.